0: The Woodside Church podcast. morning, everyone. Wasn't that good, how God's been clearly speaking, and I'm thinking, now how does this fit with what I've got to share from Exodus 32, uh, the story of the golden calf under the subject destroy your idols. Well, let's see how that goes, and uh, the story of the golden calf, it's all about idolatry, and which in the modern world takes many forms, not just religious. Things that we worship or give our lives to, which are not God, can be seen as idols. What or who do we live for? Big question. God or something or someone else? What who replaces God as our source of joy and celebration? From what do we get our security, or from whom, our comfort and our peace? From God, or something else, or someone else? How do we identify and destroy our idols? So we're going to look at this story and uh, there's one verse that's not in my notes, but I just think as we were considering about the power of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, will uh, I'll also just weave in and bring because uh, I believe uh, we're going to see something I hope and trust of God's heart today. Now we start in Exodus 32, where Moses, for another time, it's not the first time, is going has gone up. The Mount uh, Sinai, quite a sizable mountain in the wilderness, and the rest of the people apart from Joshua, who's attending Moses, are down, if you like, at base camp. They're down below the mountain. And Moses has gone this time for a longer time than ever before. In fact, we read a few chapters back that he has actually now been up in this mountain, unseen by anybody, apart from Joshua and God, for 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's just under six weeks. So if we go from today, which is the 12th of June, we're talking about gone up until the 22nd of July, uh, just nearly when the, the schools are breaking up. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't seem too long. But we all know that when we're waiting for something um, like lockdown to finish, it just seems to take an age. You think, when's this going to finish? Or you're waiting for your exam season to start or to come to an end, and it just seems endless. Or you're really excited and looking forward to something, a a holiday, or um, relatives turning up, or whatever the special event is, and it just seems like a long, long wait. Well, the people of Israel were having a very long wait, and this is how the story goes. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain... They gathered around Aaron, who was put in charge while Moses was away, Aaron being Moses' brother. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. This is shocking. I mean, these are the people who a few months ago were celebrating under the leadership of Miriam because God had seen them through the Red Sea. The one who was leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, whose presence had been among them, who'd supplied the manna, who'd supplied the quail, who'd actually given them water, fresh water to drink and graced them with his presence. And now they're saying to Aaron, we don't know where this Moses has gone. Come and make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, this is shocking. Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, isn't this shocking? But that's what they did. And Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he brought, built an altar in uh, in, in front of that calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early. The next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings, peace offerings, and after this they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Whoa. The Lord said to Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they've turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They've melted down gold and made a calf and they've bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are the gods, o, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them. And I will destroy them. And then I will make you Moses... Into a great nation, but Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, "Why are you so angry with your own people, who you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and with such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face, um, uh, wiping them from the face of the earth?" Turn away your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. So, great prayer, isn't it? The Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Prayer answering God. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hand the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. That's what God, uh, Moses was up there to receive. What well, Sarah two weeks ago brilliantly was sharing about the Ten Commandments and here they were in, uh, dis, uh, inscribed in God's own hand. He brought these two tablets down. And when Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he explained to Moses, it sounds like there's war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. And when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. He destroyed the idol. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, What did these people do to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Don't get so upset, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold jewellery, take it off. And when they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire... And out came this calf. Huh. Do you get what's going on here? <laughs> we'll come on to this in a minute with a few uh, points. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who were on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. It's quite a story, isn't it? I mean, it's shocking when you look at it. What we're going to do, first of all, I just want to share, a list, really. I mean, I, as the more I've looked at this chapter, the more I think you could do a whole series of sermons just on chapter 32 of Exodus. There is so much in here. But I'm going to list seven things we learn about God from this story. Can I just encourage us, by the way, when we spend time for ourselves in the Bible, use some questions sometimes. You think, well, I don't know if I'm getting much out of this. Just ask a question like, what can I learn about God from this? What can, what can I learn about people from this chapter? What can I learn about the ways of God? What can I learn about myself? What does God want me to do? Ask questions like that and you'll start to find God speaks to you and gives you understanding. As you say, Lord, please speak to me. Give me understanding. Open this passage to me as I read it. So here we have seven things we learn about God from this story. The first thing is he knows everything about our lives. You think, well, God was so focused on conversing with Moses for these 40 days. Surely that's where his attention was. But he knew every detail simultaneously with what was going on in the camp of the Israelites. Amazing, isn't it? And how does God do that? He does it because he's God. He knows everything. He knows your emotions. He knows your decision-making process. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows your actions. He knows what nobody else knows. And he knows you better than you know yourself. God knows everything about our lives. And secondly, we see that sin provokes God's anger. We saw that so much in verses 9 and 10. God expressing and saying how the fury of his anger uh, towards what was going on. And if we're honest, there are things which are wrong that we see and hear about in the world that make us angry too. We understand this, don't we? When there's abuse and injustice or war crimes or invasions or different things which you think, this is not right. When the poor are turned out. and I mean, there's so many things. And we sense something of that. But the reality is that as God looks at the world, all have fallen short of the glory of the sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And so God's intensity of how he feels about sin is far greater than ours could ever be. But he feels it passionately. He, sin provokes God to anger. Thirdly, he has the power and right to punish those who sin. There's no question about God's right, if he so chose, to start all over again with Moses and his descendants. There was no question about that. It wasn't like, God, you can't do that. You've got no right to do it. He had the right to do it, but God pleaded with his promises Uh, Moses, sorry, pleaded with his promises, uh, God's promises, and his mercy to bring that about. The, uh, the, the, The Overlooking, well not overlooking as we'll see in a minute, but dealing with it differently. The fourth thing we see about God, and this is very precious, is that he confides in those who spend time with him. He told Moses things that previously Moses didn't know. When we spend time with God, he confides in us. Isn't that precious? When we're listening with a listening ear, and this is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in. When we read about Jesus who says, I will give you my spirit and he will be your counsellor and he will lead and guide you into all truth. There are many things I have yet to teach you, but he will teach you. And we're still in the days when we have God's word And through God's word, by the Spirit, God speaks to us powerfully, profoundly, and in life-changing ways. God confides in those who spend time with him like Moses did. Fifthly, he hears our prayers for mercy and is ready to forgive. Moses pleaded for the mercy of God in this story. Now, we are a church, rightly, that celebrates the grace of God a great deal. And sometimes we couple the word grace with mercy. But we don't actually always really fully fathom what mercy is all about. You see, grace is when God blesses when we don't deserve it. Didn't earn it. Mercy is when God doesn't do to us what we do deserve. Wow, you've got the mercy of God revealed in this passage, which is really wonderful and something for us to celebrate. He hears our prayers for mercy and is ready to forgive. Now as we continue with the story, there's two more things about God. We'll just see that actually there's even more to it. But it's some of the most difficult verses that you find. And there are some difficult verses in the Old Testament. You think, how could God uh, do this? And Moses, uh, verse 27, Moses told them, this is what the Lord, the God, uh, to the Levites, the God of Israel, says, each of you take your sword, go back and forth through the, uh, one end of the camp to the other, and kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed and Moses' command, and about 3,000 died that day. And then Moses said to the Levites, he said, "Uh, you've you've done the right thing and earned a blessing. Now, we know what the Bible says about loving your enemy and about uh, laying down, you know, turning the other cheek and all those other things. But the truth of verses like this, and then when it says at the end that there was a plague, um, this is at the end. uh, Moses intercedes for Israel again, which we'll come to in a minute. But... We know that the penalty for sin is death, and we have all sinned. And this is just an illustration of that. The mercy of God is that it was only 3,000 and not the 2 million or so of them. That's where the mercy of God comes. And the ones that Moses gave the instruction to were those that did not turn away from the particular sin that we're facing here. But we cannot mess with God because God is holy. And there is a separation between God and man that cannot be bridged or could not be bridged. And Moses sought to stand in the gap. And this is what he did. Moses, uh, uh, verse 30, uh, next day Moses said to the people, We've committed a terrible sin, but I'll go back. To the Lord on the mountain, perhaps I'll be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, and listen to this, this is shocking too. Moses speaking to God, erase my name from the record that you have written. Moses puts his own life on the line for the sake of his people who were utterly turning from God in rebellion in one fell swoop. And he says, God save them, you can take me. Wipe me out. Take me out of your book. It's amazing, isn't it? But the Lord replied to Moses, no. I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now you go and lead this people to the place I told you about. Look, my angel will lead uh, the way before you. When I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. And then the Lord sent a great plague upon the people because they'd worship the calf that Aaron had made. Now, here's the next thing about God we read. He has provided a mediator. But it wasn't Moses. The mediator, he knew he would provide a means by which the people can be forgiven, by which sin can be cleansed, by which people can have relationship with God, by which there can be an inner transformation. And he knew it would be himself. And the day would come when Father, Son, Holy Spirit acting together would bring about salvation. You see, Moses sought to be, offered to be a mediator and God said, no, it's not you, the time hasn't come yet. But the time will come when sin will be dealt with, when there will be a means by which the sins of the whole world will be forgiven. And the Old Testament, which is the New Testament concealed, tells the story of how God leads towards a saviour who at the right time came. And his name is Jesus. And so we see here in uh, uh, that, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6, this is good and pleases God our saviour, this is God's heart, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Isn't that wonderful? And then finally, God desires our wholehearted devotion. And as Sarah and Candy last week both shared in their preachers and teaching. We heard how the first two commandments you shall have no other gods besides me, first commandment, and the second one you shall make no idols. And then in, cha- in verse six of that second commandment comes a promise but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. That's God's heart. You see, God's heart is for relationship. And we see this here. His heart is for relationship with you and with me and with as many people as possible throughout all of history and throughout our generation too, from all the nations of the world. And so we've got God's heart where God is longing to lavish his love on those who love him and obey him. Two-way relationship. Have you got that sort of relationship with him? And I love it. It's lavish his love. It's not a little bit. That's God's heart and his intent. To dwell with the people and be with you and me and love and obey him. And you find his love is just being lavished on you out of relationship. Wow. That's why God hates idols so much. Because they take us away from that very thing. You see, they needed a saviour and the world still does. But God has provided one at the right time and his name is Jesus. So... What do we learn about idols from this story? Firstly, they're of our own making. You see, they made the calf the focal point. Not God. They said, make us a God who we can celebrate as the one who got us out of Egypt and now is going to lead us on from now on. And when Aaron wrongly made this calf... It became their focal point for celebration and for sin and for revelry and for sacrifice. There was nothing holy, pure or good about it. But idols become, uh, they're of our own making. It was made by Aaron, having collected all the gold. And whatever we make our focal point our motivation in life outside of God. If we're living for something else, you can start to say, hang on a minute, perhaps I've got an idol or so here. If your career dominates everything and dictates your emotions, how you feel, your security and everything else, and God is on the margin somewhere, then guess what? It's possible for your career, your job, to be an idol. But in the same way, your house, your prosperity, entertainment, luxury, whatever it happens to be, there can be, in modern day terms, all kinds of idols that become of our own making. The second thing we find out about idols is that they replace God in, people's, in our affections. They were more excited about the idol, about this golden calf, that they could see than about God and their leader who seemed to have disappeared and they couldn't see. Who do you get most excited about in life? There's a question. Or what? Suddenly starts to help us identify. Have I got any, you know, where's God in position in the whole of my life? Thirdly, they turn us away from following God. They said, make some gods who can lead us. In other words, they were saying, they were turning away from God so quickly, rather than being centered on him. Idols do that. Is there anything turning your, know your love growing cold? Because something else is dominating your motivation, your life, your ambitions, and so forth. And they can also, fourth thing, they can appear in our lives Almost unnoticed. You see, Aaron said to the people, here's an altar in front of the calf and tomorrow we will celebrate a festival to the Lord. Oh, hang on a minute. He's not saying to the calf, he's saying to the Lord. It's all a bit of a mixture, isn't it? And it's almost like, well, we've had celebrations before, you know, with Miriam leading us in dancing and declaring how God has rescued us from our enemies and so forth. Now we're doing the same thing, really, aren't we? We're having a celebration to the Lord. just happens to be a calf now. And do you know what? Sometimes we can even be in a setting like this but have hearts far away from God because we're devoted to something or someone else. And then the next thing we see is that idols can appear in our life. Oh, sorry, I have said that one already. Um, uh, they can lead us into deception. We all, some people, sort of sniggered and laughed a bit when we read the verses about Aaron's response to Moses, and he wasn't really telling the truth, was he? Because what he said, well, I just collected all the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That's deception. It's a lie. It's changing the narrative. It's not actually what happened. He wasn't taking responsibility for what he had done. And idols can do that. They can lead us into say, dis- well, I'm really very committed to God. But everything in our lives seems to belie that fact because of the way we live. Another thing idols uh, are is they are identifiable. The calf couldn't be mistaken for being an idol. And Jesus clearly identifies idols, and here's a common one. Here's an example in Matthew 6, 24, when he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Well, that sounds familiar with Exodus 32, doesn't it? And then he says this, You cannot serve both God and money. Whoa. Or in the old versions, mammon, which is money and material things. And so they are easily identified. The calf is identifiable. We can identify where idols lie. And then we can just ask the question, well, well, to what or to whom do you look for your main source of security? To what or to whom do you look for your peace of mind, your joy, your identity, or your fulfilment? Is God enough? Do you say it's God, but in reality, when you analyse your life, it's something or someone else. I just want to recommend a book and then just move quickly on, but Tim, Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods, is brilliant on this. And if you want to really think, actually, I just need to, need to do some business with God, um, then I highly recommend, I uh, get a nod from somebody else as well, because this is, this is a really good book and it really helps on all of these things in a modern day Western context. Really helpful. Let's move on. Last thing about idols. Good news. Their hold on our lives can be destroyed. Because the calf got utterly destroyed You see, idols can be one of two things. They can be obviously bad things. And the calf was an obviously bad thing. They were still mixing their old life in Egypt with their new life in the wilderness. You see... If you know anything about ancient Egypt, if you studied it at school, as most of us did at some time or other, or if you've been to a museum somewhere and seen the Egyptian section, or if you've been to the Tutankhamun exhibition that was down in there, or seen any documentary on TV about Egypt, and gaps don't go on too long between, before there's one opportunity or another, you will know the whole land was full of idols, full of gods. And in fact, a calf... Uh, a, a calf bull was often considered to be a strong god, you know, the sort that would get you through the Red Sea and would take you further on from now because of the strength that it has in its thighs and its muscles um, as, as it leads there. And what were they doing? They were mixing their old life with their new. But the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come. We are new creations. We are not to love the world, but to love Christ with all of our hearts. If anyone loves the world, uh, says John in 1 John, the love of the Father is not in them. So do not love the world or anything in the world. And then Romans six twelve. do not let sin control the way that you live. Some idols are obvious sin. How do we get rid of them. Well, we destroy them. And in verse 20, we read exactly what Moses did. He burnt the calf, he ground it up into powder, he put it in the water and he made the people drink it. Yuck. But you're not going to get that idol back again, are you? And we too are able to destroy those things which suddenly creep into central place, but actually Are wrong and need to be dealt with in our lives. How do we do it? Well, we do it not in our own strength, but by trusting in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He Himself, He Himself, bought our sin in His body on the tree so that we may die to sin. That's where it gets destroyed and live to righteousness. We come to the foot of the cross. And then on an ongoing basis, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Ask for forgiveness, because Jesus was punished in your place for those things. Isn't that wonderful? See, the Gospels here in Exodus 32, all over the place, he gave his life so that we could be free of these bad idols. Isn't that wonderful? We bring it to Christ. And then, for us, it's it's destroying the idol, but it's also one other thing. And what Moses did in Exodus, uh, uh, verse 26 of this chapter, he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, all of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. It's trusting in Christ and then following him on a daily basis. That's what does it. And deciding to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their own cross and follow me. That is how we destroy those obviously bad idols. But I just want to bring one more thing and then we're going to pray. Idols can also be good gifts from God, not the obviously bad, that have wrongly taken the central place in our lives. You see, there was nothing wrong with the jewellery that the people were wearing in the wilderness until... It became an idol. And there are many good gifts that you and I have been given. Our families, our friends, our church, our jobs, our income, our careers, our houses, our uh, entertainment systems. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Holidays, our bank balances, and whatever else it may happen to be. Good gifts from God that themselves are not sin, but they become idols when they replace God in our affections. So that our love for those are greater if we're honest than our love ever is for God. That's when they become idols. Now, when I was a very young Christian, 50 years ago, I'd been a Christian already for seven years, but God did something dramatic in my life through a group of people who really passionately had given up everything to love Jesus and a particular meeting one evening when the person speaking gave the illustration of a bicycle wheel. And the bicycle wheel was drawn on a blackboard. That was the sort of day it was in 50 years ago. And this speaker had written along all the spokes different aspects of our lives. Relationships, friends, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it happens to be. Money, career, job. And, and it went around lots of good things. And then he just said this. A bicycle wheel is like your life. And then he wrote, G-O-D, in the hub, in the middle. But he said, unless all of the things in your life, which are not sin, but good things, are centred on God, your life won't hold together. Now let me tell you, there's only one hub available in life. And it's not an idol. Because idols are not God, but only God himself. And God's will for his people is that we love and obey him and put him central in all things. Where he is the priority in everything. Where we're thankful to him for all of our gifts that he's given us. All the blessings he's given us. And we always keep him central. And let our motivations, let our our, our desires for the future be centered on Him and honoring and loving and following Him and seeing His name glorified in and through our lives. Whoa, there's quite a lesson here, isn't there, in chapter 32 of Exodus? But it's helpful to us today. Golden calf, is that relevant? Well, yes, it's very relevant indeed. An idol can be a good thing in the middle of the wheel of your life rather than a spoke. The thing you love more than God. Idols in reality can never be proper hubs. Only God can. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. And we have a few moments just to be before God. Just me and God for a moment. And if there's anything that you're aware of, that I'm aware of in my life, where you just need to say, God, I'm sorry. Then can I encourage you to do it right now? don't have to tell anybody else. God knows. He knows everything as we've seen. But just God, this has become out of proportion in my life. It's become too important compared with you. I've not had you in the middle. Or God, this is wrong. It's like the calf. It's really grotesque. But now I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm bringing it to the cross because you paid the price. At the right time, you came as a mediator. Just bring anything before him in response. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, even now as we're praying, be as much at work through your word in our lives as you were evidently as we worshipped you. It could be a life-changing moment for you right now. It could be a moment even for the first time when you begin to experience God lavishing his love upon you as you turn your affections entirely to him. Father God, we thank you for your deep mercy. When we deserved to be wiped off the planet, instead you sent your Son to be our saviour and to save us from our sin and to bring us into relationship with you and to put your Spirit wonderfully filling us within So wonderful, Lord. We rejoice in you and thank you. And Lord, this passage has stark warnings, but also great promises. A fellowship with the living God who loves to lavish his grace and mercy on his people. We welcome that, Lord. Help us to celebrate that. Help us now to keep you central in the middle of the wheel of our lives and let everything that you've given us and blessed us with, let that all be for your glory. We don't want you as a spoke, we want you as a hub and for our lives to bring honour and glory to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.